1: Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and WomenToWatch.net. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And if you'd like to join our conversation or ask some questions of our very special guest this afternoon, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, feel free to dial 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Before we get started, I have a, a really exciting and special announcement. I have to give a big shout out to my niece and her husband, who welcomed a baby boy, Jack Ryan, into the world this morning, um, adding to the Rocco clan. So we're all beside ourselves and thrilled. Uh, I haven't seen him yet, but I know all is well, and he's a big, healthy baby boy. So congratulations, Kristen Ryan. Looking forward to seeing uh, Jack soon. Um, I also want to give out our website and uh, tell you that you can keep up on all the news Women to Watch related and check out our lineup at Women to Watch dot net. That's Women the number two Watch dot net. Uh, I'm so thrilled to um, introduce to you our, our very special guest this afternoon. I I feel so honored. Um, to not only know her, but have her uh, as a guest on the show to share her story. Her name is CJ Scarlett. She is founder and president of Tiger Eye Sensor Incorporated, which is an award-winning entrepreneur. I'm sorry, she is an award-winning entrepreneur. She is a victim's advocate, a motivational speaker, and an author. And the Tiger Eye Sensor is a patented device uh, that will actually call police and record video footage when the wearer um, is in trouble. So uh, please welcome to the show C.J. Scarlett.
0: Thank you, Sue, for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to it, C.J. I have, I have so many questions for you and and really just been looking forward to, to telling your story. I think you are really um, the epitome of a woman with resilience And uh, you have uh, a tremendous amount of advice to offer our listeners. So I wanted to start with uh, your years growing up. And I understand that you did a lot of moving around from military base to military base with your family. Uh, Your dad was a Marine. And that's difficult, Mm -hmm. you know, not having roots. Talk about those years for a little bit and, and what effect that had on you.
0: I was uh, born in Southern California at, at the Marine base in Camp Pendleton, uh, the twin sister of the first born son. And I was the, the fourth child, so I became the superstar in order to get attention. My uh, five brothers and sisters and I grew up all over the country because my dad stayed for 20 years in the Marine Corps and we were largely living between California and Connecticut. Um, when my dad went overseas, we would stay with relatives in Connecticut. And when he retired, we moved to Arkansas when I was 12, which was quite the culture shock because I've been raised in in liberal Connecticut and liberal California, and I wasn't mentally prepared for the shock that came with living in the South. <laughs> um, so that was that was a real transition to have to make. I tell bet, you. yes. And tell um, me, I, go ahead. Um, I'm, I was going to say, I stayed in Arkansas until I was uh, 20 and joined the Marine Corps myself. At the age of 20? At the age of 20.
1: And tell me about, uh, did you have siblings,
0: CJ? I did. I had five brothers and sisters, including a twin brother. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I was in Arkansas until Sunday and got a chance to see all of them and it was wonderful. And how about mom? Did
1: did your mom uh, work outside the home?
0: She did every once in a while, and when my dad retired, he bought a nursery and landscaping business, and my mother helped him develop the business. My father uh, was my inspiration for being an entrepreneur. He was always inventing something new in his head or, or thinking of ideas to start businesses, and my mother was constantly telling him that it was a bad idea or that we couldn't afford it or we couldn't do it, so... Uh, except for the nursery and landscaping business, he never really got to explore his entrepreneurial side. But that sparked a fire in me to become an entrepreneur later in my life.
1: Yeah. And and your grandfather as well, right, was an entrepreneur? Uh,
0: yes, he was an inventor. And I think he had 12 patents to his name in the automotive industry. Wow. Okay. And so, I wanted it, to be an inventor like him when I was little.
1: Yeah. It's really in your DNA, I would say.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Yeah. So um, let me ask you, deciding to go into the Marines is a big, big decision, and other than the fact that, you know, your dad was a Marine, was there um, a turning point for you when you made that decision?
0: Well, actually, I um, I was in college at 19, and I was a freshman, and I was dating a sheriff's deputy, and on our second date, he raped me. And that drew me into a tailspin. And for months, I went into this deep depression after this occurred. I didn't tell anybody what happened. In fact, I didn't tell anyone what happened for a couple decades. But I was in this deep depression, and my family didn't know what was wrong with me. And one day, my father called me aside and said, you know, whatever's going on with you, you have got to pull yourself out of this. I want you to talk to the recruiter, military recruiter, and see if um, the Marine Corps is right for you. Because, he, you know, I was I was unable to work. I was unable to do anything at that point. And I, I talked with the recruiter. I, I aced the entrance exam. I got a contract, a six-year contract to be a photojournalist, which was something I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And I went to boot camp, and my father, before I ever left, my father, and my recruiter, taught me how to field strip an M16 rifle, how to march. I knew my general orders. I was so well prepared when I got to boot camp, and... When I got there, all the girls would cry at night in their bunks because they wanted to go home. It was so hard. And I would lay there in bed and think, this is it. All they're going to do is yell at me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because I already knew everything before I ever went. So boot camp really brought out the best in me. It provided me with some discipline and helped me grow up pretty quickly. Wow. Wow. It pulled me out of what what I was going through at 19.
1: Yes. Uh, But then, of course, you know, something happened as well while you were in the military, which is a big part of your story. Can you talk about that?
0: Yes, my recruiter himself, um, it was actually very common in you know, in the early eighties and, and I'm sure before that, the recruiters would take advantage of the of the women recruits. And my um recruiter sexually assaulted me as well and he was in a position of authority over me and I and he used to joke that if I didn't do what he said he was gonna make sure I spent my six years as a cook in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, reluctantly went along with what was happening, but it was very traumatic ultimately because I couldn't. I, I got in the Marine Corps, and, and the sexual harassment was just daily. You know, for for women Marines, there aren't very many women Marines, and um, the combination of the sexual harassment combined with the sexual assault by the recruiter made it very difficult for me to trust the men that I was having to work with and for.
1: Oh, I bet. Yes. You know, you stated, CJ, that, the, it, you know, the culture of the military really kind of contributes to a threatening environment. Tell me what you mean by that, what, what the culture of the military is, and in what ways it does that.
0: Well, there's a strong esprit de corps. There's a strong connection, especially in the Marine Corps, that you are the lone wolf who becomes part of a very strong pack. And we are very closely bonded with each other, and hold secrets very dearly. We don't want to do anything that's going to do negatively impact our fellow Marines. And so this culture of not telling, especially in the 80s when there, you know, sexual assault in the military was not being discussed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was just no, there were no words for it. There was no standards for it. There was no way to report, and it. If I had reported, I would have had to have gone through the chain of command, which meant going to some of the men who were actually sexually harassing me themselves. Yeah. And so there really wasn't an option available to to the women Marines who were being harassed or assaulted um, to get help. Mm.
1: So there was really never a point where you, you know, even considered speaking out.
0: Um, I considered talking about telling about the recruiter, but again, I, I was so proud of being a Marine, and I did not want to be a crybaby and a tattletale. Wow. And get another Marine in trouble, so yeah, I kept yeah. silent. Now I regret that. Now, you know, knowing what I know and knowing that he did that to other young women, boy, would I have told. I would have made sure that he was he was taken care of.
1: Yeah, and that's that was going to be my next question. Would you, you know, to suggest to young women today, there's uh, of course, a lot of um, women in the military today, um, that they should speak out. And, and it, it's so understandable, all of the parameters around that kind of an experience and why you would want to keep it to yourself, mm-hmm. thinking that would make it easier.
0: Yes, but they should absolutely tell because the mechanisms are now in place and the resources are now in place to help them deal with their experiences. Yes. Um, the, the sexual assault rate's about twice in the military is about twice as high as it is in the civilian world. Um, often because women are in positions where they're underneath the authority of the, the people who are assaulting them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's not a lot of opportunity for them to to tell and to have it taken care of and be taken seriously. That's the hardest part. I mean, with any rape, being taken seriously when it's a he-said-she-said said situation, I mean, that's about as tough as it gets. It's one of the reasons why I invented my personal security device that we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um- one of the things in reading over your bio, CJ, that struck me, um, and I wondered if this kind of was a precipitous for your um, kind of coming through the other side of the trauma that you experienced, you had an opportunity to meet with a Tibetan Lama. First, I want to know how mm-hmm. that opportunity came about. <laughs> uh, and yeah, if you know what that sit down with him and you know the discussion and conversation that you had was was that really a turning point that kind of, you know, s- led you to the other side? I'll say from an emotional standpoint,
0: it certainly did. Well, in nineteen uh, it, about the toward the end of my enlistment in the Marine Corps, I, I was diagnosed with lupus and scleroderma, which are autoimmune conditions that affect the joints and the heart and the lungs. Mm-hmm. And I was sick on and off over the years, but I was medically discharged from the Marine Corps for that. And although I was able to work for some period, by 2000, um, I was having, it was affecting me severely. And I became very debilitated. I was going up and down the stairs on my hands and knees. I couldn't hold a hairbrush or wash my own hair. Mm. Um, I look like a little old lady. I was so huddled over to barely walk and often couldn't walk. And I... Uh, by 2002, I was in such bad shape that the doctors told me I was going to die, that my heart was, I was going to experience heart failure. And the prognosis was, you know, any day to two years. Wow. And so I curled up in a ball and waited to die. I was terrified. Every time I had a little chest pain, I mean, I freaked out.
1: Yeah. Were you alone at that and then time, I had the, CJ? Were you living? Oh. Uh,
0: I was married.
1: Okay, you were married. I was married. My yeah. my
0: children were, were living with their dad at the time, but I was married to my second husband. Okay. And he, he took good care of me, but he didn't, You know, I I was so ill that I mostly was bedridden at that point.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Then I was offered the opportunity to meet privately with a Tibetan Buddhist lama. And I hobbled up to his house, and I made this pitiful bow, and I burst into tears. And he brought me into the house, and he sat me down. And I poured out my tale of woe, Sue, and I waited for him to shower me with sympathy that I thought he deserved. And instead, he gave me what I refer to as a cosmic (laughs) slap. He told me to stop feeling sorry for myself. And start thinking about the happiness of other people well I was shocked and I was offended I I told him I, I can't take care of myself how can I possibly take care of anybody else
2: yeah
0: but he insisted stop feeling sorry for yourself and start thinking about the happiness of other people and on the way home I was trying to imagine what I could possibly do in my debilitated state when an ambulance passed by with a siren blaring and I said a quick prayer for the person inside that they would find help and healing And I thought, well, that was easy. I can do that. So I started sending good wishes to the drivers around me and letting drivers cut in front of me in traffic and letting the mom with the crying baby go ahead and be in line at the grocery store and buying a cup of coffee for the person behind me at Starbucks. And I felt a little bit happier. And so I started to do more. I gave my cane to a woman who was struggling to walk and I volunteered at the Red Cross after Hurricane Katrina doing their database work.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I felt happier. And I, I reached a point where I was so filled with joy and gratitude that it no longer matter whether i was sick or ill or even living or dying i was just happy and at that point my condition went into remission and that was within about 18 months and what i didn't know at the time was that science has proven that when you perform an act of kindness you get a dose of mood boosting serotonin and pain-killing endorphins and so i was every time i did an act of kindness i was literally healing my body from the inside out and it worked wow
1: Well, I'll tell you who will love this story. And and unfortunately, she wasn't able to join us today, Dr. Beth Dupree. Um, She's uh, vice president of Holy Redeemer Health System, one of our core sponsors. And she is just such a huge um, believer in the power of integrative medicine and also kind of that mind over body. And here you literally experienced it, you know, turning a disease like lupus around is incredible
0: I feel better today than I have felt since
2: 1990
0: I I still have flares and I still have some health issues here and there Mm -hmm. but for the most part they they don't bother me because I don't take I'm not I, I don't identify myself as a victim any longer I don't identify myself as a sick person any longer and as long as those were my identities bad things kept happening to me and I remained ill and when I released those identities And focus on other people and and making them happy. It freed me up to have better life experiences and healthier relationships.
1: Right. And and what and as you said in the beginning, such an easy way to start to do that. That's not a big life transformation to um, pay attention to. You know, being kind to others. It's such an easy thing to do day to day, with such a lasting. Yeah, it took
0: seconds to do, and it cost me nothing. One day, I was feeling really sorry for myself. And I was happy. My, my pity party was turning into a grand pity ball. And then I stopped and I thought, wait a second. The llama taught me to to stop feeling sorry for myself. So I, without even really thinking about it, Sue, so I pick up the phone and I dialed a random number and I got the voicemail of some computer guy. And I left him a message and I said, even though nobody remembers to tell you, you are appreciated. And I hung up. And in ten seconds, I went from feeling miserable and unappreciated to feeling fantastic. Mm. And it took ten seconds.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, se- it seems like such a simple thing, and and it's it's advice that we're given throughout our life. Certainly, as children, our parents are <laughs> teaching us to be kind to others. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you know, it's just so incredibly powerful the way you absorbed his his message to you and his lesson.
0: I believe he saved my life. I believe that if I had continued down the path I was on, that my health would have continued to have deteriorated, and I would have I would have died.
1: Yeah, and how wonderful for your children. Not only you mm-hmm. know for that, that that transformation, but for the lesson it is for them.
0: Yes, and now I and I have grandchildren that I get to enjoy, and I look forward to a long, healthy life.
1: That's terrific. Um, let's let's talk about your books for a second. Um, you wrote one book called Neptune's Gift: Discovering Your Inner Ocean, and first yes. of all, I, I one of the quotes I love from that book um, is. Although we appear to be separate from one another, we are collective drops that together form a vast ocean. Tell me what inspired that that quote. That good. I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And I love it. I'm
0: sure. Thank you very much for reading the book.
1: (laughs) I try to do my homework. I I try to be prepared. Um, But that's a beautiful quote, you know, and again, another reminder of what. People can do together rather than um kind of going about it alone out there
0: yeah we we, we tend to have a sense the sense that we are alone that it's us against the world and that it, that we're battling with everybody but there's there are seven billion people out there, each of whom is experiencing their own drama they're all heroes in their own story and they're all experiencing these dramas. And we don't realize that the, we're casting the other people around us for parts in our play. And when they don't act the way we want them to in our heads, then we feel thwarted and we get angry with them and then become our enemy. Well, they're doing the same thing to us all day long. But it's, And so as long as we perceive them as being separate from us and don't recognize our shared humanity and our, our collective soul, really, um, we will remain separate. And it's like if you look at your hand and you look at your index finger, and it looks like a, a, you would say, that's my index finger. But it's part of a hand. Those five fingers are part of one hand, and that one hand is part of one body. And we can't see the connection with other people, but it's there just as much as our finger is part of our hand. Mm.
1: Tell me how, uh, why the the name of the book, Neptune's Gift, where did that come from?
0: Um, I was reading uh, Tuesdays with Maury by... Um, Oh gosh, his name escapes me right now. I was reading two sentences more by Mitch uh, album. and there was a paragraph toward the end of the book just about this average wave who meets a who's afraid because he's going to crash on the shore until he meets a larger wave. He teaches him he's not a mere wave, but the ocean itself. And I, I was so struck by that one little paragraph story, and I sat down and in 24 hours I wrote Neptune's Gift, wow. and the I, it took a little while to edit it, but I wrote the basis of the book in 24 hours. Didn't wow. eat, didn't didn't do anything. And the, the name came from the idea that, you know, people believe in, in God or a universe or a being or whatever they believe in or don't believe in, but there's some unifying force out there, energy, whatever it is. And choosing the name Neptune's Gift was a way of personalizing that that life force without doing it in a way that might be offensive to somebody who doesn't believe in a higher being. Mm. Yes. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes and tell me are you the I, I believe you're working on a current book or has it been published the uh, nice girls uh, it'll
0: be published in the next 2 months okay mm-hmm.
1: that's a great and title by vi- the way
0: thank you well we're calling it now we're calling it living empowered in a scary world what to do before during and after a crime occurs okay and it's a book about the psychological and physical things you can do to prevent to, to keep from becoming a, a victim of crime And what happens if you are a victim of crime? What happens afterward? In preparation for writing this book, I read 16 other self-defense books, and they were all written by martial artists and were all focused on beating the the crud out of a perpetrator without ever mentioning that if you're defending yourself, and you should, if you can, um, he's he's also wailing on you. Mm -hmm. So all the books talked about hit him in the throat, hit him in the eyes, but they don't mention that at the same time it's happening the predator is going to be attacking you at the same time. So this book is about the techniques you can use to keep from being a victim at all by using your, your head. And then some physical things with my co-author, my co-author who is a martial arts expert, um, goes through to defend yourself during a crime. And then the after effects, the psychological and physical after effects in the event that you are a victim of crime. And there's sections there for college age and, and high school age women Um Because they have a unique way of looking at things, they have a different way of looking at the world than than someone my age, for example. I'm Mm. in my mid-50s. Yes.
1: So it's more of a how-to book than a story? Are
0: there any personal stories? stories. Yes, there are lots of personal stories of other women who have uh, thwarted crimes and children who have thwarted crimes or been victims of how they dealt with it. Uh, Some of my stories weaved into the um it's throughout the book, and it's it's meant to not to to terrify women but to say um you can you know by using your 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 psychological and physical faculties you can be more confident in this world and protect yourself it's not we we can't wait for a man on a on a white horse to come charging in and rescue us. we are perfectly capable of rescuing ourselves, and I talk about things like um um releasing your your inner tigress yeah if anybody has ever out there has ever given a bath to a cat you can you can imagine how difficult that is the cat is going to fight and bite and scratch and claw for all its worth well if you do the same thing when you're under duress um that perpetrator is going to run
2: yeah they're we not going to want any part of that, that we have
0: to- yeah they're not going to want any part of that. They don't want attention. They don't want noise. And if we're biting their ears and we're scratching them and we're kicking and we're screaming and fighting as dirty as we possibly can,
2: mm-hmm.
0: we're going to do some damage and they're going to drop us like a hot rock.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's such important um, lessons to not only be taught but uh, to be reminded of. You know, God forbid any mm-hmm. anyone we know or love, you know, um, it becomes a victim in any way. But to not be prepared... You know is not is not a good way to be
0: that's right and and anybody who has also tried to um make a two year old who doesn't want to stand up try to make them stand on their own two feet when they're wiggling around and they're going dead weight and kicking and screaming mm-hmm. um there are children who thwart perpetrators because they um throw tantrums and so basically as, as an adult we can throw a tantrum. And really scare a predator into leaving us alone because we are so unpredictable; they don't know what to do with us. Mm. You know, go crazy on them.
1: Go crazy, right? Right. Um, You know, I wanted to to mention that uh, in 1997, you were the director of Victims Issues for the North Carolina uh, Attorney General's Office, and you initiated uh, the implementation of the of the nation's first, or was it the statewide? The state's first the nation'
0: first statewide yes got it statewide victim notification system that basically what it does is uh you enter your um your name into the database and before your perpetrator is released from custody from jail or prison with it, at least forty eight hours beforehand, you will receive a phone call or a text message telling you that they're going to be released because we had situations here in North Carolina and elsewhere. Where a victim of rape would turn around in the grocery store and her rapist would be standing behind oh her my and she gosh. would have no idea that he had been released. Right. And for women, especially in domestic violence situations, they need that time to be able to find a secure location to stay in. Yes. If they want to remain safe. Yes. So that was that ended up being used as a national model by the US Department of Justice.
1: So now that is that is done nationally, on a national level? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that's wonderful. What, you know, let, let me ask you, what did it take to um initiate something like that? I mean, first of all, it's amazing to me stuff. that it didn't come about sooner, but um what kind of steps did you have to take to to actually make that go into law?
0: I was at a conference in San Francisco and heard a company called uh called Vine describing how they had implemented this program in Louisville, Kentucky. And I went up and asked the director or the the president of the company if they'd ever done it statewide, and he told me they had not. And so I went back and I met with the attorney general, and I said, let's do this. I'll find the grant money, and I did. I got a million-dollar grant. And the difficult part was pulling together all the criminal justice agencies because the sheriff and the correctional facilities and the courts and everybody were always competing for funding and resources. Right. And they'd never sat down at the same table before to collaborate on one project. Mm. And they didn't want to sit down with me either. And um, what I did was I named a gentleman who was well respected by everybody in in the in the state as my co chair, and they followed him. I was just some young thirty something that didn't know you know myself from a hole in the ground, and so they well, followed. So Bob. they
1: thought that was not the case.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Bob got everyone to sit down at the table and play nice, and we were able to implement it. But it was it was a challenge.
1: Yeah. Wow! Look at you. I, I just, you know, CJ. You from the beginning of of the interview, you're you're very matter of fact about what you've done and what you've been through. And I I wonder, um, you know, this strength that you have. In other words, there there's a lot of women, men as well, who who if they went through some of the, um, the trauma that you did, it really would have set them back. And I wonder what it was that allowed you to instead take it as an opportunity to to give back and to do something wonderful in spite of it.
0: Well, thank you. Um, for a long time, for, for the first 30-something years of my life, too, I was a victim in every sense of the word. I embraced the victim mentality, and I clung to it. I believed that You know, there was something inherently wrong with me that made good people do bad things. And I felt a lot of shame and guilt and Mm. self-loathing because of the things that had happened to me and that I believed that I I had caused to happen to me. And, um, you know, the great thing about getting older is that you get wiser in the process. And I read a lot of self-help books Mm -hmm. and I got into some counseling, which really helped. But the biggest change for me came when I looked in the mirror and was honest with myself about how much power I wielded as a victim. This is going to be tough for a lot of people to hear, but victims have a tremendous amount of emotional power, uh, and I was very manipulative with my power. I wasn't manipulative to be cruel to people or to make them do things that were bad. I manipulated people to keep them from hurting me, and so I would pretend to act like they wanted me to act, hoping they wouldn't hurt me, and that was manipulative, so I did it to stay safe. And I like I said, I wasn't doing it to be cruel, but it was manipulation and power nonetheless. And most people who cling to that victim status don't want to admit how much power they wield, but they do. And it was only by looking in the mirror and staring myself straight in the eye and saying, I, can't, I don't want to manipulate people anymore, I don't want to lie to people anymore, that I was able to start changing my behavior and start being an authentic person. Because I had not been an authentic person for the first 35 years of my life.
1: Well, and I think that's very common, isn't it? You know, I think there's a yes, lot of people walking around as imposters, so to speak,
0: mm-hmm. to stay safe, to protect themselves from right. a scary world. And so it's understandable, but it's not—it's not sustainable if you want to live a happy life.
1: That's right, and. And we should mention. I want the listeners to know that you were actually named one of the Happy One Hundred people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> what a great title that
2: is!
0: It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah,
2: uh, you know, Marcy I-
0: Shymoff is a best-selling is a is a New York Times best-selling author, and she wrote a book called Happy for No Reason, in which she named hundred happy people that um, exemplified joy. And I was lucky enough to be one of the ones that she selected as Um, for that for that title
1: yeah that's that's a wonderful title that is really a wonderful title Um, listen we're going to take a quick break and when we come back i want to get right into um, tiger eye sensor and find out how you launched the company and and all about this uh, device that is going to help so many women great we'll be right back thank you 233 That's msjacad.org or 215 3177 Welcome back everyone to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco and I am joined this afternoon by CJ Scarlett and CJ is the founder and president of Tiger Eye Sensor Incorporated. She is an award-winning entrepreneur, a victim's advocate, a motivational speaker, and an author. And I'm uh, just thrilled to have CJ with us today. CJ, so we talk a lot on this show about entrepreneurship and, and starting businesses, and what a big scary thing that can be, right? Yes. Yes. So I I wanted to start with you know when when and where you were when you first came up f- with the idea for uh, this sensor.
0: In February of 2013, I was reading a book called "Abundance: The Future Is Better Than You Think" by Peter Diamandis,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the book is about how people are using emergent technology. To address humanity's grand challenges like poverty and hunger and climate change. And I thought, what, and and, and how they're impacting a billion lives in the process. And I thought, what could I do that would impact a billion lives? And my criminal justice background kept popping up and I kept shutting it down because as a victim advocate, I love my work, but I became very tired of dealing with crime after it happened. It's a very high burnout job. And then it occurred to me that I could use technology to do something to keep crime from happening at all. Mm. So I founded a company called 10 for Humanity, and it is to devise 10 innovative solutions using emerging technology to reduce acts of violence globally by 10% over 10 years. And um, our first solution that I formed into the company, Tiger Eye Security, Tiger Eye Sensor, Inc., is the Tiger Eye Security Sensor. And the Tiger Eye Security Sensor is a small, wearable, personal security device, size of three stacked quarters, and it looks like a little black square, but you can disguise it as a piece of lovely jewelry or a name badge or something like that, but Mm -hmm. it's voice activated. It's the only voice activated personal security product that's going to hit the market this year, and when you call for help in a criminal or medical emergency without having to use your hands or press any buttons or do anything like that, the English monitoring operator who finds out the nature of your emergency calls police or ambulance to the scene warns the perpetrator to leave you alone because the police are coming, and it photographs and audio records the perpetrator and sends the data to the cloud so they can capture and prosecute him later.
1: That's an amazing component to this, the fact that it videotapes. And and I'm assuming that then when you're wearing it, it has to be somewhere um, near your voice, number one, and visible Mm -hmm. in order to videotape. So on a backpack, yes, or on you your, wear it as your... a
0: pendant or or a brooch as a as a pin or a pendant, okay. so that it's on your chest and close to your your mouth.
1: Right. How about on the strap of if you, if you're wearing a crossbody bag with a lot of girls? I have a daughter who's living and working in in Manhattan, and a lot of these young women are walking through cities with their crossbody
0: bags. Could it go on to the strap? Of a, of a purse? Absolutely. We're creating, we're creating uh, cases that it can slip into that can go on a backpack strap or a crossbody bag, as long as it's on the chest so that the voice can carry to the microphone that's on the device. Right. Um, and, that, and the reason we chose to put it on the chest, besides the fact that it's obviously closest to the mouth, mm-hmm. is that the core of your body is less likely to move. Someone said, why don't you put it on a watch? Well, your hands are either frozen in place or they're moving erratically, and so you're not going to capture good images. Um, the images become very important it, it, the images and the and the audio recordings don't matter to the victim while the crime is occurring because they're concerned about their personal safety at that point, but they become very important later when it when you have evidence that can keep from being a he said she said situation.
1: How long did it take for the for it to go from your idea to actually being manufactured?
0: I thought of the idea in August of twenty thirteen. And um, kind of played around with the idea for a, for a while before I formed a team around it in June of 2014. That's when we formed Tiger Eye into its own company. Yes, and began working seriously to raise the investment money that we need and to work on the development of the prototype. So where we are now is that we are still raising some investment money. We've gotten we've gotten some and we need a little bit more, and we. Um, are getting ready to manufacture an untethered version of the prototype. We have one that is attached by USB cable to your computer. We're working on one now that is as small as the device will actually be that can work um, without being attached to the computer. Now, it's voice-activated through your phone. So the device itself, the Tiger Eye sensor device, has a microphone, a speaker, a camera, a a gyroscope, an accelerometer, a battery, and so forth, but it's Bluetooth to your phone. So the phone captures, uh, the the images are sent to your phone and then shot to the cloud. So you have to have your phone within like 30 feet of you for this to work.
1: Okay. Are are there plans for um, sometime down the road or in the future for it not to be necessary to have the phone? In other words, the, yes, you know, so the actually device... Yes, something
0: we're talking about now. Yeah. yeah, to make the device itself a cellular device. Mm-hmm. Now, it would have to be larger than what we're making it now, and that's the only drawback. But technology is advancing so quickly that I think it, within two years, it will be a self-contained device that will not require a cell phone.
1: I think that's great because, you know, in, yes. the, in the heat of the moment, I, you know, you can picture almost... Um, you know, any any type of perpetrator is might be going for that phone to to immediately get rid of it. You know, so that you can't use it
0: for yes. anything. Um, but yes, and then even, even if they take a tiger eye device and they smash it, it's too late. The images start recording at the second you you say the keyword to activate it. The images start oh. being taken.
1: Oh, that's terrific. And
0: being sent to the cloud. So yeah. if they see the, the the brilliant LED light shines from the device into their eyes to help illuminate the scene and to blind them, so you can run away. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it takes beautiful photographs. Um, if they grab the device and they smash it, the images are already in the cloud, so it doesn't matter. okay, oh, that's terrific
1: w- Where did you get your um, technology um, background in education?
0: Um, my only technology background before had been working with the um, the statewide victim notification system, the computer telephony system that I implemented in the 90s. Yes.
2: Um,
0: I'm learning about technology as I go. What I'm doing is hiring brilliant people around me who have that technology expertise to be able to carry this forward. I My, my love and background is in the marketing and public relations and the storytelling.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the reason I chose... Now, I made a very conscious decision not to be CEO of this company, and I had... A lot of um, other entrepreneurs, particularly women entrepreneurs, kind of chastise me for that and say, you should be running your own company. But I recognize that I'm a great visionary. I'm not good in the weeds. Hmm. I'm not good at saying, here are the 10,000 things that we need to make this vision come true, and let's start with number one and move to number two. I'm great at doing anything that's asked of me, but as far as the day-to-day operation of the company, it's neither interesting to me nor in my skill set. So as president and chief innovator of Tiger Eye, I get to go out and do the marketing, the branding, and tell the the story of the company. And um, I get to do all the fun parts and work with the CEO to make um, the product uh, into something real that we can get on the market. And it should be on the market this summer.
1: Okay and and you know what isn't that Timmy you know how I feel about storytelling that you know at the behind mm-hmm. any great company or business or product um is a story that's the most powerful component
0: Yes absolutely if you can't tell your story with your company um if you don't have passion for it and have a story behind it it's very difficult for people to relate to it and so you know for you who who get entrepreneurs on your show and inviting them to tell their stories, it's a wonderful um, mechanism for them to engage with potential buyers, but also with uh, with the public in general.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, if if it's available this summer, are you going to be launching it online, or will it be available in retail, or
2: both?
0: Uh, probably both. We're not going to be, we're not going to be a retail company ourselves. Our monitoring partners, which will be like the ADTs and the Monotronics and the CPIs of the world, will offer this to their customers. And the retail price would be around probably 179 but the monitoring companies are likely to give it away at a much reduced cost in exchange for the monitoring contracts, which could range from 10 to $15 a month, which is, you know, people pay $10, $15 a month for texting. This will protect their daughter in college or protect a realtor, Who's out there meeting strangers all the time, or protect your your active senior parent?
2: Mm, yes.
0: So we think we think we're setting a good price point for this. It's going to be affordable to people. Um, so we we will also be selling the cases and covers through um, retail outlets for this, so that you can have one that goes with your pink suit, or your black outfit, or your little black dress, or your running outfit.
1: Okay, great, um, and. Any plans to go on Shark Tank to get a boost? Uh, everybody,
0: everybody asks that. They—they'd they eat me alive right now because we don't have revenues, and they don't like companies that oh, don't that's have right. revenues. Oh my gosh! Um, don't
1: go in there without numbers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Barbara Corcoran would love this, though. She would love this because she's a realtor, and that's one of our target markets.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, I think Lori Greiner would love this too. Um, they're we actually, yeah, they're both are getting the investment money we need without it. So I Good. think, uh, but a show like that could give us exposure that we need to be able to really take us to the next level. So that's the decision we'll make as we get closer and have some revenue. That's right.
1: That's right. I mean, what a wonderful platform to really kind of jumpstart your your PR and your exposure and let people know Mm -hmm. it's out there. Definitely. Yeah. Tell me, um, you know, from having this experience, CJ, and, and, um, you know, now being behind this company, do you have aspirations for other um, inventions on the horizon?
0: As a matter of fact, I do. That company, 10 for Humanity, um, we have nine more solutions to come up with. And one of the things I want to do is create a one-day rape kit test. There are 400,000 rape kits sitting on the shelves in, throughout the United States that have been there for weeks or months or even years in some cases because the jurisdictions don't have the funds to pro, or the personnel to process them. And for every time, every time a rape kit is not processed, the rapist goes free and is free to perpetrate it, you know, against other victims. And so if we can create a rape kit that that is processed much more quickly and effectively, then we are taking rapists off the street. Because I saw a statistic that said the average rapist will rape six times before they're caught. Oh, my goodness. And if we can catch them the first time and get them off the street, we just save five people from being victimized.
1: That's incredible. To, so you're saying that there just is not enough manpower to – To take care of they have
0: they have DNA kits they've got a process for murder for murder scenes and things like that and so the rape kit if the victim especially if the victim is not willing to to prosecute right then right um, they're often set aside to do later and later may never come
2: wow
1: wow that's unbelievable Um, tell me I want to go back for a minute CJ and talk about your um, your work with the North Carolina Lupus Foundation. Are you? Yeah. Tell me what what you're doing um, with you know what your work is with the foundation. And actually, have there been any
0: advancements out there? There are some advances being made. We had the first drug for specifically for lupus um, in 50 years come out last year. It was called Benlista. I've not had to be on it because um, my health is, has improved so much that it's proving beneficial for a lot of people with lupus. Mm-hmm. I served on the North Carolina chapter of the Lupus Foundation for six years, and my six-year term just ended, so I'm no longer with them. But it was, it felt. My mother has lupus, and two of my sisters have lupus, oh. so I felt like I was doing, you know, serving that organization not just for myself, but for my my family and for other people who have lupus. Um, I'm the president of the North Carolina Veterans Business Association and I sit on three other committees for nonprofits, the Soroptimists and the Partners Against Trafficking Humans in North Carolina and so my nonprofit work is really important to me and uh, sometimes I get in over my head and it's difficult to balance with the workload I've got Mm -hmm. but I, I know from experience that if I don't set aside time to do something for others, as I talked about earlier, if I don't find a way to get back to the community at the same time I'm working for my my own benefit, then I'm going to be out of balance.
1: Tell me how you know that's a you know hot topic, work life balance, and um, mm-hmm. I think that we all have different um, techniques or tools or, or ways we go about kind of staying organized, uh, especially women that are involved in so many different things. What is your um, What is your uh, day-to-day way of of getting through the day without feeling overwhelmed?
0: Well, I don't have kids around. My my children are grown, and I have small grandchildren that I see a couple of times a week happily. But I'm not not overwhelmed by children in the household. Yes, they are nearby, which is very fortunate. I love having them nearby. I am a widow. My husband passed away a couple of years ago, so I have a lot of free time. Um, I tend toward workaholism, and I'm able to work at night when I want to. One of the ways I find balance is by maintaining a good perspective of time. Time, as you get older, starts to flow so much more quickly, and it can feel like it's out of your control. And I learned that if I stop clinging to time and stop thinking frantically, oh, my God, time is passing too fast, there's not enough time, there's not enough time, that I take the pressure off myself and time is able to flow more smoothly. I don't know if that made any sense or not, but but just letting go of the idea of...
1: yes. I'm going to tell you, I think that makes complete sense to me because I think that the mm-hmm. day I decided to slow down in in what I mm-hmm. do throughout the day and not have such a sense of urgency, uh, it allowed me mm-hmm. to be much more focused.
0: Yes, and time can, time just seems to flow more readily and more smoothly when you're not clinging to it and That's frantic right. about it. That's right. I, um, I, think I, I also have – I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Well, I've also learned how to let go of attachment to the outcome of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was clinging, when I wanted things desperately or wanted to avoid things desperately, I was constantly anticipating what the outcome would be, and I was worrying myself to death. And once I learned to let go of it, of, of what the outcome was going to be and just allow things to happen the way they they were going to, um, life got a whole lot easier. I mean, eye may succeed extravagantly or it may fail, I'm not attached to that outcome. I'm going to do the best I can to make it succeed, but if it doesn't work, I'll live with that. I can. I'll make. I'll make something good happen out of no matter what comes next.
1: That is great advice. That is truly great advice. But I would imagine people that are listening, you know, that struggle with that, probably want to know how you got to that place. In other words, how we all worry. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, mm-hmm. you know. Certainly if we're involved in a project, excuse me, I'm sorry, we worry about, uh, you know, we're we're definitely worried about the outcome. And um, Mm -hmm. so your attitude is so incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just, um, it it does, it kind of takes this pressure off. In other words, I think in today's culture uh, in particular, everything is done with a sense of urgency everything and Mm -hmm. one of the reasons Mm -hmm. is because technology allows us to do things so quickly but when you Mm -hmm. purposely slow down you know it's kind of like living in the moment you know that's a big message um yeah it 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 really is very helpful but you take it a step further by allowing yourself to understand that things might not go the way you planned and you're going to be okay with that
2: you know, you okay. What
0: really turned yeah. it around for me, Sue, was the, the knowledge that there's no wrong choice. This is This is an epiphany. This is an epiphany for me and for every woman I tell this to. There is no wrong choice. We think there's one choice to make, and if we don't do it right, we're going to screw everything up and it's all going to go wrong. That's not true. We have so many different ways of doing things and so many opportunities for things that no matter which one we choose, we will make a good outcome of it. So it's like that. Remember that old screensaver with the stars coming toward you, the Microsoft screensaver, with the stars that flew yes, at you? Yes, yes, yes. Life is like that. It's All these opportunities are coming your way, and if you're focused on the past, those stars are going to smack you on the back of the head and you're going to be taken by surprise and knocked over all the time. And if you're looking forward and you focus on the star you want to get to, you can avoid the ones that don't fit, or you can say, oh, this one's an even better opportunity and switch. But no matter what you choose to do, you will always have the ability to make the best of it, so there is no one way to do it, and there is no one wrong i mean there's no wrong choice to make here it's okay if things don't look exactly like you envisioned because it's going to be all right yeah,
1: so true, really, really great advice yeah. and 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 also reminding ourselves that when we will, make, we will make bad choices or wrong choices. and um,
0: Oh, yeah. I've done plenty of that. <laughs> sure. Every day.
1: We do it all day long. And, uh, but, you know, really to think about it more as an opportunity to learn a lesson is something that I try to do. So, in other mm-hmm. words, all the times, you know, any, anytime I make a bad choice or a mistake or something doesn't work out, rather than think of it as a failure, it truly is a lesson for moving forward.
0: And doing it's a learning tomorrow. point. You are so right, Sue. It is, it is the mistakes we make, as tragic as they may be, and the, the mean people and the quote-unquote enemies we meet that push us to perform exceptionally, that make us go places in our head we wouldn't go voluntarily and that force us to grow mm-hmm. as spiritual and emotional and physical beings. hmm and so if it weren't for that tension, if it weren't for the mistakes we make and the people we, make who, we meet who thwart our desires, we wouldn't grow. We would be like a flaccid rubber band that doesn't have a purpose. It's when we have tension in our life that we have opportunities to learn and grow and become better people.
2: That's
1: right. And how exciting is it And and, you know, much more enjoyable to live with the curiosity of wanting to learn? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, and you reach point you can actually reach a point where you look forward to um the difficult challenges because you know in your heart that although it's gonna be maybe difficult and it may be challenging, it's going to take you in a new direction as a as a as a human being, as a leader, as a woman, okay. as a mother, a wife.
1: Right. Yes. Um CJ, do you want to talk about your kids for a couple of minutes? Um, I'd love to know. You have three grown children, and, and I'd love to know what they're doing and what your advice has been to them.
0: I actually have two boys. Um, one is thirty, going to be 32 next month, and he's the one that has nine-month-old twin grandbabies okay. who are just – Wow. You know, they talk about grandbabies (laughs) being the joy of your life. The greater joy for me is seeing my son be such an amazing father. It is just such a gift to see him with those children. I bet. And my younger son is 29, and he lives in California. My older son's in in North Carolina with me.
2: Okay. So
0: my younger one's in California, and he's a massage therapist um, who's hoping to open his own practice one day soon. Okay. And the the boys just, wow. I, I see... That, as messed up as my childhood was and my young adulthood was, I've got two amazing, strong, intelligent, healthy kids and two healthy, intelligent grandbabies, and think, how blessed am I? You know it's just life has gotten so beautiful, sue, that it's almost it's almost unbelievable to me
2: Aww. and
0: it's because um it's because I was willing to do the work to get here, and there are so many rewards for doing the work
1: you know when when our kids see us being brave i think that's a a really incredible lesson so my guess is your yeah. boys seeing what you're doing and what you've been through and and that you've come out you know as they say on the other side how could they not be strong you know happy young men living good lives
0: oh thank you thank you i'm i'm very fortunate and um I am blessed with the most amazing women friends and a, a, an entrepreneurial ecosystem here in north carolina i'm at just outside of the Raleigh area that supports and um provides opportunities for me as an entrepreneur to to learn and grow and that's been very rewarding
1: well it, it sure is an exciting time for women um in the field of entrepreneurship i mean we're we're seeing it, it every week on the show um you know women have mm-hmm. some great great ideas. Um they are you know they say they're they're the consumers they are the ones that are really um tuned in to to what we need and um it really is an exciting time and we're lucky to have all of the networking groups and the initiatives that we do to support each other
0: mm-hmm. and I invite any um you know women entrepreneurs out there who want to connect with me to do so. I can be reached at c j at tigereyeensor dot com and our website is www.tigerisensor.com, and I would I, I would respond um, you know readily to anybody who wants to reach out for, you know, just to make a connection or or wants to know what resources might be available to them.
1: Well, not only that, there might be a listener who's interested in supporting um, the company.
0: Oh, that'd be great! You know, from I'd love to hear it from them yeah, for
1: from different uh, reasons. Do you ever come to the Philadelphia area?
0: Um, I drive to Connecticut every few years, and so I come through that way um, every few years. But when I do the next time, I, I would love to stop by and see you.
1: Oh, that would be great. I, I really would. And I, I think, you know, by then there will be some other things um, on the horizon for you, and, and we can catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me yes. again, j- just give your website one more time and your contact information.
0: Sure. My website is com. And my email is cj, as in Cynthia Joyce, at tigereyesensor.com.
1: Okay. And as a motivational speaker, CJ, I'd love for you to leave the audience with one last bit of advice, um, and, and we'll say for women perhaps that are on the verge of launching their own business.
0: Ooh, that's a great question. Let me think about that for a second. I have to go back to what I said a few minutes ago, that there is no wrong choice. If you think, if you're afraid to start a business, And go on an entrepreneurial adventure because you are afraid you're going to make a mistake. Turn that around and recognize that no matter what happens, I've made some spectacular failures in my entrepreneurial career that have served me well in this venture. I had two previous ventures that did not work out for me, but this one is going gangbusters. Mm. And so it, it is in the trying of things that you learn and grow. And you can't make a mistake here. It's all fodder for your growth and so if you have an idea for a company and you're wondering if you should do it go for it absolutely go for it
1: i love it i love it cj thank you so much for taking a whole hour out of your day i know how busy you are and i really appreciate your sharing your story um so openly um and
0: selflessly thank you for having me
1: I i wish you continued success
0: thank you so much sue you take care
1: you too That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, Please visit our website to keep up on all things Women to Watch at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. I hope you all have a great week.